Again, if this is your first time to be at New Spring, I... <laughs> there was one day, several weeks ago, I was writing all the scripts for the preview, like you just saw, and Muriela said, you're having way too much fun with this. <laughs> this has been the series of the year for anybody who would listen to me for months. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11 in the last verse, where we find the words, the thing. The thing shows up at the end of a story. I'll tell you that story in a moment. Before we do, I want to tell you another story. You know, I can leave the television on and read at the same time. I don't know. Is that an ADD thing or is it, can everybody do that? But I'll do that. I'll just have the television playing, but I'm not really paying attention. I'm reading my iPad. I'm reading a book. But I can pick up enough from the television to know that I'm, I'm watching one of those, um, you know, documentaries on like the biography channel, a crime story. It's a crime story where you meet the characters, you see what they do, and you learn what their punishment is. And I pick up enough, you know, just sort of listening out of part of the one ear, that the story is about a married man and a married woman who are getting too close to each other. And I'm not talking about married to each other. They're married to other people. Well, they're getting too close to each other. And I think, I know where this is going. And in 37 years of pastoring, I've heard this story way too many times. I've heard it hundreds, if not over a thousand times. And I don't get entertained by it anymore. I've heard too much of it in real life, and I thought, I don't think I want to watch a television show because I know what's going on here. So I went back to my book, but a few moments later, there was another word that caused my attention to pick up. The man in the story was a pastor. He was a minister, pastor of a church. And I groaned, and I thought, oh, no, not another one of those stories. The kind of story that causes people to lose interest in God, lose faith in, 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 in church and in ministry. And I thought, I don't want to hear another one of those stories. And you know, at my stage in life, I've been invited in to help a lot of churches through the years. A lot, of, a lot of leadership teams work through the grief associated with a church leader who's fallen into moral sin. So even then, I thought, I'm not going to be entertained by that. I've seen that too many times in, in real life. So I went back to my book. But the next time my attention was, was attracted, it was riveted. And I put my book down because I had to watch the rest of it. I heard the name of the pastor. And I thought... I know him. My mind instantly went back to 2001, right after 9-11. Back in those days, I used to do a lot more outside speaking than I do today. That was before New, Sing, New, New, New Spring transitioned and began to grow as rapidly as we are today. And I don't do as much today. But back in the day, I used to do a lot of speaking at conferences and for churches. And obviously, I didn't know what was going to happen on September 11th. My schedule had been planned months, if not years, in advance. But it just so happened that right after 9-11, I had back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back conferences. I remember thinking, I think I'm the last person flying because I would go into empty airports in those days. I had a conference in Texas, one in Florida, and then one within driving distance. And as I said, we're just so back-to-back-to-back. -to -back -to -back. And of course, we were all exhausted with what happened on 9-11. I just thought on that last meeting, since it's within driving distance, I want to drive there. I want to speak my two times, and then I want to get in my car, and I want to drive home, and I just want to crash. But the pastor of this particular church, I'd never met him before, he wanted me to come in and not only like speak to his church, but he also wanted me to talk to leaders, and so he asked me to come in two days early so that he might pick my brain. I get asked that question a lot, and I'm always wondering, why do people want two days to pick my brain? You can pick what's in there in about 30 seconds. <laughs> but I agreed to it, and I got there on a Friday night, and he told me, he said, I've got a golf outing planned for in the morning. I'd like for you to be there. And so I said, oh, great. So I showed up at the golf course the next morning. It's a beautiful golf course. It's just about this time of year. And 
And when I did, I noticed that he was there with a young man. He, the pastor was probably getting close to 40, I guess, and the young man that he brought with him was in his early to mid-30s, a really nice guy, and, and the pastor introduced him to me as his best friend and maybe the best lay leader in the congregation. He said, this, this guy is a businessman. He's built his own business. He's just got so much promise. And he said, I'd like for you to speak into his life. And so the pastor asked me if I would ride in the cart with this young man. And all the time I was riding in the cart, I was so amazed by how much he loved his pastor because over and over and over, he would tell me, my pastor is my best friend. And he was my pastor this and my pastor that. And, and it was just all these wonderful things about his pastor. I remember that. Well, what I didn't know until I watched the television show, and I guess there was no way I could have known, this pastor that was with me that day had started an affair a few months before. And while I was there, he was having an affair with one of the women in the church. And that affair lasted for 10 years. I don't know who's here today. A lot of you have never really met and don't really know, and I certainly don't know what's going on in your life right now, but could I just talk about affairs for a few moments? Because in, in all these 37 years of meeting people and hearing hundreds, if not thousands of stories, I've noticed something about affairs that takes a lot of people by surprise. And I want to make sure it doesn't take you by surprise in case you're in one right now or you're contemplating being in one or you love somebody who's in one. When couples get together for the first time or in the first few months of their affair, it, it begins with this idea. Our affair doesn't have to go anywhere. It's just me and you. And the rest of the world is shut out. It's just all about us being together. After all, I mean, you just discover so many wonderful things about each other when you're in an affair. You discover that she likes lasagna and you like lasagna. Don't you have so much in common? And, and, it's, um, and it's like, oh, she understands me and, and, and he understands me. And, and, you know, his wife doesn't understand him and her husband doesn't understand her. And, and isn't it wonderful that we got together and, you know, she's got her life and I got my life. But it's okay. We're just getting together. We're just having sex. We're just enjoying each other's company. It doesn't have to go anywhere. But affairs can become old just like marriages can become old. And the thing that I've noticed is a certain evolution in an affair because after a while, somebody in that relationship says, this thing needs to go somewhere. And somebody is saying, I want more out of this. This is not just about you and me getting together and you know, going to a hotel. There, there, there's something more here. And what I've seen most of the time is that one person wants it to go somewhere and the other person just wants to have sex. And if it's not dangerous enough already, this is when it gets really dangerous. Because the pressure is on for that person who doesn't want to move quite as quickly and things can go from bad to worse. And evidently this happened with this pastor over a 10-year affair. The woman was saying this needs to go somewhere, but all of a sudden he's saying to himself, hey, if this comes out, I could lose my job, I could lose my career, I could lose my reputation. But in that toxic pressure-filled moment, something really bad happens. This pastor decides the only way he can deal with this situation is he walks into the office of this woman's husband who trusted him, and as this man swiveled around in his chair to look at something behind him, the pastor took out a 45 caliber pistol, put it to the back of the man's head, and pulled the trigger. And now he's in prison for the rest of his life. I always wonder why he didn't call me. <laughs> Usually guys call me. I have you know, long-standing relationships with churches where I've spoken, but I never heard from him. But that's the truth. Two families disintegrated, a church disintegrated, and a minister blew a man away, sitting in prison for the rest of the life. And oh, by the way, the man he killed was the young man in my cart that day who told me the pastor was his best friend. 
I have two questions for you. Why did that happen? And could it happen to you and me? Truth of the matter is, that's just two versions of the same question. We don't want to think it is, but it is. Why did that happen? And could it happen to me? See, it's our concern about answering that question, that second question that leads us to make presumptions because we could make the, the, the simple statement. We could say, well, you know, the reason why this happened, this pastor was a sociopath and he just wanted to have sex with a woman and when it was going to blow up and, and ruin his life, he just coldly and maliciously killed this man. And, and, and that's just the end of the story. The guy was a sociopath. Maybe. Maybe not. Take you from somebody who's heard a lot of people tell their stories. And a lot of people who've told me surprising stories, normally nice, good people who have done, done crazy things. I, see, here's the deal. I, it might be the story there. Maybe he meant to do that from the beginning, but I doubt it. I don't think that the pastor got up one day and said, you know what, I just think I'll blow up my life. I don't think he got up one morning and said, I'm just going to blow up my family. I'm going to sleep with a woman. I'm going to have a long-term affair. I'm going to enjoy sex with this woman. And if it gets to be too much pressure, you know, then I'm just going to take a pistol and I'm going to blow her husband away and I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison. I don't think he got up one morning and decided to do that. I think it started quiet enough. I think it's an ordinary day. Maybe it was just something in her voice. Maybe it was just a look that they gave each other. And then it's little inside jokes. And little cards for each other, personal messages on Facebook. And then it's that, well, you know what, and how many times have I heard this one? Let's just meet to talk. Nobody's getting a hotel. Let's just meet to talk. Let's just go to Starbucks and meet to talk. And then one thing led to another. I have a question I want you to wrestle with today. Do you think only horrible people do horrible things? I wish, and I've said this in all four services, and I'm still waiting. I wish somebody who is far brighter in the area of psychology would come help me understand the psycho psychological dynamics of a particular question. I do not understand our culture. Our culture is the most permissive Wicked culture in the history of the world. It's like when we watch entertainment, it's like we watch people do all kinds of horrible things until somebody in real life actually does one of those things and then we go 180 degrees from being permissive and enjoying that stuff in entertainment and it's like our whole culture pounces on that person and wants them obliterated. Why are we so permissive on one side and why are we so draconian on the other side? Do you think only horrible people do horrible things? I want to take you now to the story where we find the thing in the Bible. I take you to the second book of Samuel, the 11th chapter, and I want to read to you about a character that you probably know well, even if you're not a church person. The character's name is David. He is the young boy who defeated Goliath. He is the man who became king of Israel, he is the writer of most of the Psalms. He is the one whom Jesus, when he came to the earth, would refer to himself as the son of David. So clearly he is not a horrible person. But I want you to read the story, and at the end we'll find the thing. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war. Now think about when kings go. Just see those words. 
At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now that's bigger than it can possibly look like. Notice this. When kings go, David remained. When kings do what they do, David stopped doing what he did. One afternoon, that's the, what the actual Hebrew word is. One afternoon, David got up from his bed. My word, what's he doing in bed in the middle of the afternoon? I can't sleep in the daytime, can you? But David, you know, has been on his bed. He's in the palace. And he walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, roofs in David's time didn't look like roofs. I mean, he wasn't like on a, you know, a pitched roof. The top of David's palace was like a large extended patio. And roofs were flat in those days. David is in this elevated patio. And from, from his vantage point, he sees a naked woman. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, and we're going to pay a lot of attention to this. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, when it comes to affairs, there's a narrative that is male-friendly. And that narrative that is male-friendly goes like this. Guys just can't help themselves. You know, it's the spur-of-the-moment thing. I'll tell you what, that is right there with the Loch Ness Monster as a myth. You can't tell me David didn't know who his next-door neighbor was. You know who your next-door neighbor is. But if, if that weren't, just that assumption, if that assumption weren't enough, we can read it totally into the response of this man that David sent out to find who it was. Because he, he, he came back to David and said, sir, isn't she, you know what, if you ask me a question and I say, isn't it, I'm making the assumption you know the answer before you ask the question. And, and David sent the man out to find Bathsheba and he said, sir, isn't she the daughter of Eliam? Now, David was one of the world's greatest fighting men in the history of the world. And leaders reproduced themselves. So what did David reproduce? He produced a fighting machine that was the greatest army in the world at that time. And it wasn't just a great army. It was deep with leadership. There were sergeants. There were lieutenants. There were colonels. There were generals. There were commanders. But there was one small group that was so elite, so special forces, that they were just known as the Thirty. And there were legends about the 30. These guys were the rock stars in Israel. And the man basically is coming back to David and saying, please, sir, not her. That's your next door neighbor. Her daddy is one of the 30. And her husband, Uriah, he's on his way to becoming one of the 30. You know what's interesting to me? David is planning the cover up before he does the sin. He's sort of spinning the narrative in such a way to say, oh, I didn't know who she was. You can't sell that to me. I'll bet you David had seen this young couple on state affairs. And he watched your eyes. He ushered in his wife. And everybody in the place was looking at Bathsheba, including David. And David knew who Bathsheba was. Then David sent, verse 4, messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And oh, was it just once? I'm guessing it was several times. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. Guys, we're beginning to get into what we're going to talk about here today. See, here's the thing about David. As smart a man as he was, when he thought about the little affair he was going to have, David kind of saw it as a pet that he could kind of keep, you know, he could kind of keep in one part of the house. And when you and I look at a temptation, you know, something like David is looking at, we sort of size it up and we figure out how much this is going to cost us. And David thought, you know, this is probably going to cost me a little bit, but I can, I can contain it. 
But now it's starting to get out of control. Because the woman sends David a text and says, I'm pregnant. Well, there's only one thing. That can't happen legitimately because her husband is in the field. And so now David has got to, you know, events are spinning out of control. David has to get control of the events again. So he tries a soft cover up. He sends a message out to the field to bring Uriah home to get a directive from the king. And Uriah's going to come home, have a little R&R, and David's figuring out that men are going to do what men do when they're in R&R, and he's going to go straight to his house, and he and his wife are going to get together, and everybody's going to say for generations, oh, man, this baby was conceived during R&R. David's got a problem. Uriah's a Marine's Marine. And while his brothers in, while his brothers in arms are out there lying on the cold ground, he's not going to go take some time off with his wife. I mean, he just wants to come get his directive and get right back to the field. He is saying, how can I take time off when my fellow soldiers are suffering? And so he says, I'm not going home. Now, what I want to tell you next is so painful. I, I don't even want to tell you because you got to realize this is the man who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. David, David said, the Lord is my shepherd. This is the same guy who wrote, even though I walk through life's darkest valley, you're with me. This is the guy who wrote, the Lord is my rock and my shield. This is the man who wrote, the Lord is my salvation. This is the man who wrote, God's word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against him. And you know what he's going to do next? He wants to get Uriah so drunk that Uriah will forget about his values and go home anyway. But even stone passed out drunk, Uriah's got more value than David does. Just, they come back to David and say, sir, you got him drunk all right, but he's sleeping in the hallway of the palace waiting to get up the next morning and go back to the field. Well, David's tried the soft cover up. Now he's got to try the hard cover up. He wanted to go about it the easy way. Now he's got to go about the hard way. So he gets out some parchment and his pen and the wax with which he seals his official notices, and he writes out Uriah's death notice. There's only one way to deal with it now. Uriah's got to die. And so he writes this message to his commander, Joab. He says, put Uriah in the very front of the battle. Well, that's where they put the guys they knew were going to be killed. They would never put one of their top leaders out there like Uriah. And Joab, no doubt, when he got that message, he must have thought, what is the old man thinking? But he knows how to obey an order. And you've got to realize the coldness of this. David sealed up that message and handed Uriah his own death message, and faithfully Uriah took the death message to Joab, and Joab put Uriah in the front of the battle, and sure enough, he was killed. And the message comes back to David, Uriah's dead. Now David is concerned that his commander may worry about why that happened, and so David is sending him a comforting message. To Joab he says, do not let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. It's as if he is saying, don't let this bother you. People die. <laughs> I'm waiting for it to bother David. Well, you read the rest of the story. The Bible says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him after the time of mourning was over. David had her brought to his house. She became his wife, and she bore him a son. I'm guessing that was the news release. And everybody in Jerusalem said, isn't it cool? Don't we have a wonderful king? Look at, look at how generous he is. The young war widow, her husband dies. She's pregnant, and he marries her. And now that kid's going to grow up with all the advantages of the kingdom. Oh, don't we have a wonderful king? And David thought, I've got my little pet. Got him taken care of. It's all fine. 
There's a verse in the Bible that's given me chills ever since I was a little boy. And it's verse 27. It's the verse our series comes from. The Bible just says, but the thing that David did displeased the Lord. Notice that God is not identifying it anymore. God doesn't say his adultery and his murder because now this has morphed into a monster. This is something that the whole is going to be greater than the sum of its parts. It isn't that David has added adultery to murder. It's that David has got an exponential problem on his hands. He thinks he has a little pet. He thinks he has it contained. But in the last verse of the chapter, the Bible says, no, it is a monster out there that's going to shred the rest of his life. I grew up in church, as some of you did. Some of you didn't, and on occasion, I think you have the advantage over those of us who grew up in church in certain situations. But growing up in church and growing up in religion, as good as it was and as good as my leadership was, I think somewhere along the line, I sort of picked up two misconceptions that need to be dealt with. The first misconception that I think is prevailing today is the idea that sin is something that we want to do, and God hates sin, He judges sin, so the challenge in life is to make sure that we don't sin at such a level that we bring down God's judgment on us. So the only thing that can happen to us when we sin is God's judgment. But by the same token, isn't it true? Don't we teach that God forgives us of our sin? Well, that's true. Did you know that God will forgive you of any sin? The Bible says this in 1 John, that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. All means all. And here's what I've discovered in life is there are a lot of people who are Christ followers that like walk in with that misconception that sin is just about what I want to do and keeping God kind of off my back. And I've asked God to forgive me and he forgave me, but now I'm still sailing into this catastrophe. What's wrong? Does God changing his mind? <laughs> here's what we don't get, starting with me. It isn't just God that judges. Sin judges. See, sin itself is a catastrophic force. You let it into your life. And here's the thing about David. Did God forgive him? Read Psalm 51. God forgave him. All the chapters in the Bible that talk about David after this, God never brings up his sin again. But you realize this. David has let loose a monster in his life, and he will never have another good day. It's gonna, as we're going to see in an upcoming message, it's going to shred his family. It's going to shred his life. He has spent his last fun, good day glorious day. Not because God hates him. It's just that David has unleashed a monster. The second misconception that we have is that we're on a neutral, we make choices in sort of a neutral arena. It's like I have good choices in front of me and bad choices in front of me. If I make good choices, I'm going to reap the benefits. If I have bad choices, I'm going to suffer the consequences. And it's just sort of me in a neutral, a level playing field. Guys, just as you have a God who loves you, you have an enemy who hates you. And his name is Satan. He is not God's equal. But the reason why some of us have a hard time truly believing in him is we've been so cauterized by the caricature of our culture. It's like we see Satan as this cartoon character or this hideous figure. None of those things are true. Satan must have probably had a big hand in building those concepts. Satan is an angel. He's an invisible spirit. He's extraordinarily powerful. And on top of that, he's assisted by a third of the angels who rebelled when Satan rebelled. And we call those demons. And the thing about it is, when you and I make choices, it's not like we're making them in a neutral playing field. It's like we've got somebody whispering things in our spirit trying to pull us into wrongdoing. But let me go a step further than that. And this is what I'm going to try to make real clear today. You're going to be hassled by Satan every day of your life. You're going to be tempted to do things that are wrong every day just as I am. 
But please, if you ever listen to a minister, listen to me well. Satan is not just a hassler. He's a stalker. And don't, don't, please don't raise your hand on this one, but anybody here ever have a stalker? That's a frightening thing. In fact, this time of year, we see a lot of scary movies. Is there anything more frightening than watching a man or a woman who doesn't realize they have a stalker? Now, just as you have an enemy who's going to hassle you on a daily basis, here's the thing that you need to understand about him. The reason why he comes after you is he hates God. He's God's enemy, and God loves you. God loves you more than you can imagine. God has invested you with your color and with your gifts and with, with all the strengths that you have. And because of that, he hates you. So he doesn't just want to hassle you. He has a strategy to blow up your life. That's what I'm talking to you about when I talk to you about the thing. There's going to be some solicitation in your life where if you put one foot in front of the other in the wrong direction, you're going to be headed toward this catastrophic blow-up like this pastor that I want to speak for and like so many others. And just in case my words are not enough for you, and they shouldn't ever be, you should want to know what God has to say, let me read to you what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5. That enemy of yours, the devil, roams around like a lion seeking someone to seize upon and devour. So remember that. Every day of your life, you're going to be hassled by him, but he's also stalking you, and he's got a plan to blow your life up. But here's the problem. This is what's so important. You know, we're in Halloween season, and you guys are all attractive. All you new springers are so attractive. Well, what's funny is when it comes to Halloween, some of you very attractive people will dress up as something hideous. I know because I see it on Facebook. I see a beautiful new spring woman, you know, dressed up as hideous. Nice looking guy, you know, just, you know, got an axe in the head, you know, here and, and all that kind of thing. That's okay, it's Halloween. But the, the thing you need to understand is that when the thing shows up in your life, he won't show up as a monster. The thing will show up dressed in the clothes of opportunity. The Bible says this about Satan. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. You, let me ask you a question. If David could see what we're going to be talking about in the next two weeks, if he could have seen how his life was going to blow up, if he could have seen how his family was going to blow up, if he could have seen such horrible things as was going to happen to him, you think you would have ever talked him into sending for Bathsheba? Man, he'd have gone running down the stairs as fast as he could. The problem is the thing that blew up David's life showed up dressed as an opportunity. David looked at Bathsheba, he looked at his naked next-door neighbor and said, wow, little skyrockets in flight, afternoon delight. I want to see who my baby boomers are in here today. <laughs> but even though it comes dressed up as an opportunity, here's the thing. If you ever let the thing into your life, you'll pay for it the rest of your days, even though God has forgiven you. Do you know who Paul Lawrence Dunbar is? You need to know who Paul Lawrence Dunbar is. The next time we celebrate Black History Month, you need to take that opportunity to just read a lot of Paul Lawrence Dunbar's work. He is a national treasure. And I, I'm not much into poetry, but Paul Lawrence Dunbar just kind of does it for me. When I was a teenager, I read one of Dunbar's poems called The Debt. And throughout my life, I've thought about the words that he said. And honestly, it's really kept me from getting into trouble from time to time. He wrote this. This is the price I pay for just one riotous day, years of regret and grief and sorrow without relief. Slight was the thing I bought, small was the debt I thought, poor was the loan at best, but God the interest. 
My time is nearly gone this morning. I've tried to introduce you to the thing, so for a few moments I want to talk to you about how to deal with the thing. I think there's only one way to deal with the thing in your life when it comes, and that's don't let it in. If you never let it in, you'll never have to deal with the problem. Don't you think David would have liked at some point to rerun his life back to when he was on top of the palace and, and just rerun the video? That's the thing. If you want to defeat the thing in your life, you can't let it in. So let me give you three strategies and we'll go home. Here's the first one. Don't toy with it. See, here's the thing. A lot of us who are God followers, we toy with sin. We say, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to like go right up to the edge. You know. I'm going to just toy with it. Well, we need to think about the calculus of that for just a moment because the thing about it is when we toy with sin and we say, I'm not really going to do it, I'm just going to go out of the edge, what we're really communicating is I really do want to do it, but I'm scared to do it. Hey, listen, I wasn't there on the rooftop with David that day, but I can tell you what David said when he first got out there. He was, I'm just going to watch. I mean, after all, it's just my naked next-door neighbor. She's taking a bath. I mean, I'm up here on my palace. Just, I'm just going to watch. So many of us get into the trouble that can blow up our lives because we really say, well, I'm not going to do I'm just going to play with it a little bit. It's just a pad I'm going to play with. Kind of like the story of a guy that I heard about back in the day when Krispy Kreme was really big and happening. He was overweight. He didn't need to eat donuts. But he was like, I don't know if any of you guys ever like many of these hyper-Christian people. He was like, he was just praying about it, you know. And he said, God, do you want me to have a Krispy Kreme donut? <laughs> and he's really spiritual. God, if you want me to have a Krispy Kreme donut, I'm looking for a couple of signs from heaven. The first sign is I want the red light to be on. And he said the second way I'll know it's your will for me to have a Krispy Kreme donut is if there's a parking place there. And sure enough, on the 12th time around, <laughs> see, that's how some of us toy with sin, you know, just playing games. God's got a word, and you know, here's the thing, and guys, you're going to really get this. I know the guys in the room are going to get this one. God has a strange sense of humor. There's a verse in the Bible about playing with sin, guys. You want to hear what God has to say about it? Listen to this. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? The next time you're charcoaling, <laughs> and you get those briquettes white with that glowing orange, you just think about dumping those in your lap. I'm going to leave it there. Does God have a strange sense of humor or not? That is God saying toying, what toying with sin is, and that's for guys and gals too. God is saying, look, you can't, if you let it in, it'll shred you. In the book of uh, James, and I need to rush through this pretty quick, but in the book of James, there's a text here about temptation. It says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. That's a fishing term. I got thinking about lures yesterday. And I went over to Walmart. And I just looked at the lures. You know what amazes me? All kind of lures, aren't there? I mean, there's, just, there's different, different kinds of lures. There's, you know, the ones that have a little, look like this, and they got the little the spinning device on there. And there's lures that look like this, and, 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 and this one, and, and there's the worms. And, 
and just all different kind of lures. And I, I bought one. Actually, I bought a whole bag of them because it's only $1.97 for a whole bag of these. I can't tell you how many fish, how many bass I caught in Texas when I was a kid. Something looked just like this. But that's the thing about a lure. See, a person who's fishing with a lure throws the lure out there and works the lure. But I thought, here's the reason why all these lures are different, you know, and here's one of the most famous, the jitterbug. The reason why, these, why, why, why it works, why you use different lures, is there are different fish, and there are different conditions and environments and different seasons. Satan knows how to work the bait. He knows how to work it. He knows who you are, how to fish for you. He knows the conditions you're in right now, and he knows what season of life you're in. You can be sure he knows how to work the bait. But here's my problem. And I, I used to look at this and think, gee, fish are dumb. You know, what fish would go after this? But there's something in that fish's nature, like James said, there's something within us that gets enticed, and then, then there's the drawing, dragging away. The main thing is, all lures are fake. Whatever it is that Satan will I mean, lure you with, it isn't real. That's the thing. We chase something that isn't even real. And it blows up our lives and we don't even get anything out of it. Everyone is dragged away when we're enticed. Don't play with it. Number two, real fast. Watch vulnerable moments. I need to go through something that really deserves a whole message in about 60 seconds. You want to watch three areas, you want to watch three vulnerable areas in your life, perhaps as much if not more than the other. Watch times of change. Why is it we say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? It's a change. Watch change. Watch boredom. That's what happened to David. What happened, you know, and this is the reason we get into so much trouble in America. We have so much time on our hands. We don't know what to do with. And we get all this energy that's ginned up, and there needs to be some sort of outlet for it. This is the reason why so many guys are hooked on porn. They, got, they don't have time on their hands. They have nothing to do. They got energy to spend. It needs some kind of outlet. My grandmother used to tell me, an idle mind's the devil's workshop. And that hasn't changed, at least in my lifetime. Third thing to watch is anger. Because when you and I are angry, we'll do things we wouldn't do otherwise. We'll violate our own values and things that we know far better. How many, how many people here have smashed something in anger that you really wished you hadn't back now? And the thing about what God says, God says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And don't give place to the devil. It's like God is making an equivalent statement out of those two things. When we get angry and we won't get over it, we're just giving Satan a space to work in our lives. God would tell Cain when he was angry about not being accepted... And his life was about to blow up because he was going to murder his brother. And, Jesus, and God said to him, why are you so angry? And he said, sin is crouching at the door. In other words, God is saying, the monster is out there, Cain. The thing is outside your door. Cain just thought he was angry. God has said, you're being stalked. All right, I want to talk to you about the most important thing. If you don't want to let it in, number one, don't play with it. Number two, watch vulnerable moments. And here's the third thing. Before I get into it, let me just tell you this. I started speaking when I was a teenage kid, 16 years old. And so after I started speaking for youth meetings a lot back in those days, I would get asked questions. And one of the most commonly asked questions was, is it a sin to be tempted? And most of the time the answer to that question is no. Jesus was tempted. But there's a caveat to that. We don't talk enough about appetites. You and I form appetites, and then those appetites form us. 
If I have formed an appetite and I'm tempted, I can't pretend I have no involvement in that. This is a foolish story. But uh, I learned to love eggnog as a kid. My grandfather taught me to. Not non-alcoholic, just the dairy product. And, and so I'd, I'd go to Texas when I was a kid, and down in South Central Texas, there was a dairy that just produced the greatest eggnog in the world. My grandfather says the best, he was right. And the only problem about a really good eggnog is that it's very high in fat, very high in calories, in the stratospheric calories, and very sweet. And so I would go, to, when I was a kid, and I would go to my grandpa's place, and I would drink Superior Dairy's eggnog. It didn't matter back then. I was a skinny kid. But as I got older, I realized how many calories, and I started having a, weight, you know, a little bit of a weight issue that I fought all my life. And, and, and then on top of that, I didn't really want any problem, though, because most of the eggnogs I would discover weren't nearly as good as what I'd have when I was a kid. So it really didn't tempt me until like a year or so ago. We were at some friend's house in Atlanta. And he made a cup of coffee for Mary Alice and me that had a particular eggnog in it. Non-alcoholic, I want you to know that. No alcohol, just a dairy product. And the reason why I want you to know that was the brand was Southern Comfort. I thought, that is the greatest thing in the world. Get back to Wichita and I find out they're selling it here in Wichita. And so Mary Alice and I had that all during Christmas season last year. You know, and I, Mary Alice is a good Southern Baptist girl. She didn't know anything about this. I said, just tell your friends you figured out how to make the perfect cup of coffee. You just put a little Southern Comfort in it. You know, she just thought Southern Comfort was a brand of dairy product. <laughs> then I got to think, you know, she may actually tell somebody that. So I explained to her, she didn't think it's funny. I don't know what to do. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I'm perfectly fine as long as I'm just putting a couple of t t tablespoons of eggnog in my coffee because that's all right. But the problem is I don't want to stop there. I want to drink the stuff. And like a small glass of it, it's like 500 calories. So I said to myself, you know what? You're just going to train yourself not to drink it. You're just going to put it in your coffee. But one night, I stood at the refrigerator looking, and I thought, you know. I said, I'm just going to, like, measure out 120 calories. 120 calories can't hurt anybody, right? And now I wake up in the middle of the night, 3 o'clock in the morning. It's all I can think about. Honestly, recently on one 24-hour period, I drank a whole quart, 1,800 calories. <laughs> and now I've got a battle on my hands with an appetite I didn't even have six weeks ago. You see what I'm saying? We develop appetites, and appetites develop us. There are guys here who have a porn problem. You didn't start out with a porn problem. You just played with it a little bit. You developed an appetite for it. And now that appetite is controlling you. You can develop healthy appetites just like you can develop unhealthy appetites. And I'm just saying to all of us here today, the thing is out there. It's coming for all of us. Satan wants to blow up your life, but it doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen to you. It doesn't happen to have, have to happen to your marriage. It doesn't have to happen to your kids. The key, just don't let it in. Next week, we'll talk about the thing that wouldn't die. Thanks for coming. See you soon.